0: Support for this episode of Big Biology comes from the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or
1: TriSim. TriSim applies ecological and evolutionary principles to improve human, animal, and plant health. Their perspective is vital to tackling our most urgent global health challenges, such as emerging infectious diseases, the obesity epidemic, and threats to food security.
0: The center taps into the wealth of medical, veterinary, and public health expertise at Duke University, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, North Carolina Central University, North Carolina A and T, and others.
1: You can find out more about evolutionary medicine and TriSim's mission at TriSim.org. That's T R I C E org.
0: About twelve thousand years ago, a revolution altered the course of human history. Called the Neolithic Revolution, or simply the Farming Revolution, it was the dawn of agriculture. Early humans began to settle in villages and grow crops, and the global population followed, increasing rapidly due to the stable food supply.
1: As you might guess, agriculture significantly changed what humans ate. Domesticated plants became a major part of the human diet, as did cattle, sheep, pigs, and goats. There was even a mutation in early Eastern Europeans that conferred lactose tolerance, allowing them to take fuller advantage of nutrients in dairy milk.
0: But even though it started 12,000 years ago, the Neolithic Revolution happened almost yesterday in evolutionary terms. Before then, for hundreds of thousands of years, we relied entirely upon what we could hunt or gather. This eat what you find when you find it lifestyle deeply shaped how the modern human body responds to food and hunger.
1: It therefore makes sense, if you want to understand how diet and exercise affect our bodies, to consider our hunter-gatherer past. Many have suggested this, leading to all sorts of diet fads, but truly learning what our ancestors ate is tough. Without a time machine, it's impossible.
0: Luckily, there are other ways to get at it. The Hadza people, a small group in northern Tanzania, are one of the last hunter-gatherer groups in the world. They don't raise livestock and don't grow or store food. They rely entirely on what they work to obtain from the environment each day.
1: Most of the Hadza diet consists of plants as well as some meat and fat. Surprisingly, almost 20% of their diet is honey, most of which is gathered through an incredible interspecies relationship between the Hadza and the honey guide. An amazing bird we'll talk more about during the show.
0: Anthropologists and biologists have been working with the Hadza for years to describe their hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Herman Potzer, a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke, says in his 2021 book, Burn, that this group is one of, quote, the last living windows into humanity's shared hunter-gatherer past.
1: Herman spent a lot of time living with the Hadza and studying what they eat, how much energy they spend to get it, and how their physiology compares to yours and mine. Some of his discoveries were surprising and contradicted common beliefs about diet and exercise.
2: Your body is doing all of this interesting metabolic shuffling, it seems, so that if you are more physically active, it's burning less energy on other stuff. And so it, it is true. It is a truism that the energy you burn at the end of the day includes your activity and your BMR and all this other stuff. But your, your, your body's being very clever about um, shifting energy allocation to different tasks so that the total energy you burn at the end of the day is kept in a pretty narrow range, pretty narrow window, and not just a reflection of how active you were.
0: Herman, of course, recognizes that not all hunter-gatherer populations eat the same thing, but he argues that the Hadza can give us some scientific insight into what our ancestors ate, and thus the modern-day state of our digestive physiology and eating behaviors.
1: I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology.
0: Well, Herman, it's a thrill to have you on the show, and let's just, let's turn to the conversation about your book, uh, which is going to come out soon, possibly just before this this podcast episode is published. Uh, it's called "Burn: The New Science of Human Metabolism." Um, you know, it, it covers a lot of familiar territory for me and Marty, but also a lot of things we didn't know, and um, just super fascinating look at the way uh, humans and other primates handle energy, um, the evolutionary trajectories by which we got to where we are. A lot of the really interesting kind of underlying physiology and uh, you know sensory systems that integrate how we deal with energy. Um, I, I want to get into it by uh, having you tell us just a little bit about your experiences in Africa with the Hadza people. So you spent a really significant amount of time in, in north central Tanzania uh, living with them, studying them, working with them and trying to understand the way a hunter-gatherer society deals with energy and and integrates, you know, this stuff in their environment. So just maybe just tell us about about the Hadza and what, what you did and what you've started to figure out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my training is in evolutionary anthropology or biological anthropology. So basically basic science, the basic science of, of human biology, the un, not applied, you know, not clinical kind of human physiology and biology from an evolutionary point of view. And, um, you know, energy is always a a big piece of that, right? How do you, how does the body bring in calories? How does it spend it on maintenance and reproduction and growth, right? The big, the big three and and also movement and range and ecology and that kind of stuff. So that's always, have always been my interests uh, in my career. And uh, I was interested, I I spent my, my graduate work looking at uh, locomotor energetics. So trying to figure out, I made a mathematical model for how leg length and muscle uh, anatomy relates to how many calories you burn to walk and run and how you can apply it to different animals. And then the idea was I was going to take that, that sort of small piece about locomotor energetics, and I was going to understand it in the context of a, an, a human, the total human energy budget, right? And to do that, or for any ape, actually, to kind of do it comparatively and evolutionarily to understand how ours have changed because our locomotion has changed a lot. We're, we walk on two legs instead of four. So there's a whole set of questions there. And they all had to do, a lot of them revolve around energy and energy efficiency and and energy budgets. And as I kind of began framing that work and thinking about it and thinking about it with my uh, close collaborators, Dave Reichland, who's now at USC, and Brian Wood, who's uh, now at UCLA, I thought, gosh, what we want to understand is, you know, again, the sort of the whole energy budget of humans, right? And we want to understand it. I looked in in the literature, and there's no data on humans as hunter-gatherers, there's data on humans like you and me, right? And that's interesting, but not really super right. useful. How much does it
0: take burn to sit at a desk typing at your computer, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you know we're we're a hunting and gathering species. We've been hunting and gathering for two and a half million years. And that's how our that's how our bodies were shaped. And so, you know, we want to have if we want to understand anything about our physiology, I would argue, then the normal baseline is to understand that in a hunting and gathering society that's that's you know and there's a million ways to be a hunter-gatherer but you know even one idea of what that looks like be better than zero which is what we often have um, and so it happened that you know I had a good contact with Frank Marlowe who's now since passed away and, and his student Brian Wood who's a basically the same uh, graduate school cohort as me at Harvard um, we are still good friends and, and we figured out we could go and do this work with the Hadza so we could go and measure energy expenditures there with the Hadza. The Hadza are a population of hunter-gatherers. Um, about a thousand of them, uh, fewer than that, are still actively hunting and gathering in northern Tanzania. And so it was just purely, you know, let's go and see. It was, it was exploration, you know, discovery science. We, we, had a, we had the idea that they'd be burning lots more calories than we do because they're so much more physically active. And like everybody else, that's I knew it would be the case that they would burn. Hundreds more calories every day than we do, and then we went out there and measured it. Yeah.
1: So tell us something more. I mean, get get some specifics. How how active are they? And and I think you know in the book you talk a lot about just how much they walk. That's one of the emphases. You know, them them versus the the Westernized sort of thing. So how much is a typical walking day?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's we just had a paper. Brian just led a paper on this, looking at, uh, at men and women's movement. And he put it in the context of steps per day, which was useful because everybody's looking at counting their steps.
1: Oh, yeah, we got the, we got the watches. <laughs>
2: exactly. So a Hadza woman, a Haza woman, you know, with a kid on her back, uh, gets about 12,000 steps a day. A Hadza man gets about eight, 18,000 steps a day. Uh, you know, and that's up and down hills, and that's in addition to climbing trees to get honey if you're a, a man, and it's in addition to, like, digging wild tubers out of the ground with a stick if you're a woman. So the rule of thumb is they get about as much activity in a day as um, as Americans get in a week or, or or more. Wow! Wow! So incredibly physically active.
0: So I'm a pretty religious tracker of my steps with my own Fitbit. So did you did you get the Hadza to wear Fitbits to get these step data?
2: Uh, not Fitbits, but it, essentially that kind of device an, an accelerometer. Yeah, uh, and so there's different versions of that and. And the, the research grade ones give you more data than the Fitbits do. So we, you know, it's all research grade stuff. So we can get steps out of it or we can get, you know, magnitude of movement or we can get, you know, timing over the course of the day. So yeah, but it's basically a Fitbit. Yeah. So
0: this, this must cost significant energy to walk that much, right?
2: Sure. And we measured that too. So we actually, we, we put a, we set up a track around camp with them and we brought out a, you know, a briefcase respirometry system called a, a Cosmed makes these things. Um, and and we measured walking costs and it's the same as you and me so their walking efficiency is not any different and so you know walking that many steps and in, at the same cost you know the same gas mileage they should be burning tons of calories every day
0: is that surprising that they're not more efficient than us I mean if they spend that much time walking and or, or is just walking is walking no matter
2: who you are and where you are yeah so that, that there's a big debate about this yeah when people have so if it's if it's an activity that you're not used to then you get better as you train and so but everybody can walk everybody's used to walking so that's not too big of a surprise. P- people have done training ex- experiments this is a whole separate world of sports science but if you put um, if you get people training to run over the court you know like you get them in a, a running program and you see if they run more efficiently at baseline versus you know three months from now you get minor changes sometimes, you know, sort of all over the map, the data, but you know, the results, but maybe something like 2 to 4% increase in, in running economy, cost per kilometer per kilogram. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm actually not surprised that it's the same. But everybody expects them to be more, you know. They should just be better at this. Exactly. Huh. Yeah,
1: yeah. Does that transfer to other modalities? I thought one of the cool portions of your book is that, you know, you were juxtaposing the cost of walking versus the cost of running versus climbing. Yeah. You know, does does the same thing transfer that you sort of, you know, no matter how much you train, you really can't gain any more than a few percentage efficiency?
2: Yeah. It's, again, I think if it's something that you're not used to, you know, then you're going to, there's like a training aspect. There's like a mechanics aspect of it, you know? But once you kind of get comfortable with the mechanics of something, you can tone change. So, for example, we measured um, we measured their climbing costs too on a separate trip. Um, so we, you know, they climb these baobab trees. They go ten meters up to get honey, and we're that's an interesting question about how much that costs them. Uh, there's also a, a really dangerous thing to do. So the, the cost is probably more the uh, morbidity cost probably. But so we measured that, and it's the same as uh, you know we measure rock climbers here back in the states, and it's the, it's the same. And it's actually, the same, everything, everything has the same efficiency climbing. So squirrels running up and down trees and monkeys at the zoo or in the forest and humans at the rock climbing gym or climbing baobab trees, everybody's about 20% efficient. So, you know, because climbing is an activity where you can actually measure the work being done, like textbook physics, like, oh, I took a mass and I raised it up this high. So that's, that's work. And you can ask, if you did that much work, how many calories did you burn? And everything is... 15 to 20 percent efficient.
0: So so when you visit them, you presumably are also walking a lot with them. So are you out there walking 15 or 20,000 steps a day? Sure, or, yeah. And, what, and, what, and what's that like? I mean, is it a, a shock to the Western life?
2: Uh, it's there are long days. Those are long days, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, you bring some water and some, some snacks and you kind of go for it. Uh, Brian would, like I said, he, you know, he spent a large part of his life, his adult life out there with them. So he's got some really epic stories of, you know, days that just kept on going and kept on going and, and, and really wiped him out. But you know, he, he and as it happens, you know, Brian keeps himself in good shape and so do I. And so does so not a total shock, not a total shock. And, and, you know, you've got a, you know what you're signing up for, but the thing is, it is hot. It's really, you're on the equator. There's very little shade. Um, And so that's the big thing. It isn't like the mileage, it's the fact that when I first get there, it takes me a week to just feel like I'm not, you know, a dried out sponge at the end of the day, every day.
1: so let's do a little bit on the on the supply side of things and i think we're going to talk a bunch later so we don't have to steal too much thunder right now getting into paleo diets and such but what what do they eat and i, I my favorite stat that you gave is that the hadza something like 8 to 10% of their diet the calories come from honey even more than that, sometimes, yeah, that's right, that's right, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah.
2: and we've done the we've done the analysis, and the honey they eat is the same honey as you're going to buy in the store. It's just you know, in terms of like macronutrients, it's just sugar and water, man. In fact, it's got it's it's about the same mix of fructose, for example, uh, and glucose as high fructose corn syrup. And so you know, there's all this demonization of sugar here in the West. And and by the way, I don't think you should add sugar to your diet any more than you know. I, I, I'm not saying you should go out and buy eat sugar, but yeah, they eat a huge amount of, of honey, which is just sugar. And they eat uh, a lot of tubers, which are these starchy vegetables, you know, just raw root root vegetables. Um, about half their diet, calories-wise, is meat. That kind of goes up and down over the course of a year or even year to year. Um, the rest of it's all plants and honey. Yeah, so you know, it's, a, it's a real mix. And yeah, the, the whole idea that there is a paleo diet, that you know, there's sort of one thing that hunter-gatherers do is ridiculous because you go, again, a- any season you go, any year you go, it might be different, you know, that than, than the last time. And then the other thing is like the idea that they don't eat carbs is just laughable. But anyway.
1: It's, it's not possible, I know, to say that they are representative, but I could see, you know, skeptics saying, well, you know, this, maybe they're an outlier. This, this honey thing, that, that alone doesn't sound typical. You know, there's plenty of parts of the world where hunting and gathering of honey wouldn't even be an option but um, to what extent do you think that they are representative of, if, they're, if it's fair to even think about the average hunter-gathering diet? I mean, are they are the outliers, or, are they, or is it more typical?
2: No, they're pretty typical. They're pretty typical for, for tropical and temperate, you know, for warm climate, uh, which is where we're all from, by the way. You know, people like to use, like, I love the paleo diet arguments. It's just like, well, if you look at what the people in the Arctic are doing, it's like, well, Arctic lifestyles are about 8,000 years old. They're actually less old than farming. And um my guess is they're not you, that you you know your the argument right has to be that our genes were shaped by these environments. And if you aren't a descendant of somebody from that environment, your genes can't be shaped by it, right? Uh so there's like a and also sort of a, a, an identity issue there. Anyway, uh that's a whole separate question. But um but no, they're pretty typical. And you know, we have data, there are ethnographic data for a couple hundred hunter-gatherer groups. Mo- Almost all of them, other than a handful, are now, you know, com- they don't those cultures don't exist as hunter-gatherer cultures anymore. They're on reservations, or they're just assimilated into villages or whatever. So, and there's, so there's diversity. There's a huge amount of diversity. Some groups did eat a lot of meat. Some groups ate almost all plants. But the, it kind of settles out at around 50-50-ish, plants and animal calories, and that's where the odds are. Every, then, then, then the argument is, well, okay, but what about a a thousand years ago? Or what about a hundred thousand years ago, right? Because the environments have changed and that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, But the farther you go back into the archeological record, right? The inferences you're drawing from what you're finding in the archeological record get farther and farther away from the detail that you can watch by actually watching (laughs) somebody. Use the data you have today. Yeah. 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 And like, not only that, but like people use, how many, you know, they, they look at, a, at an archaeological site, they dig up the bones, the cut marked bones, or whatever, and they and those archaeologists are saying, well, this looks like a Native American hunting site. And so we draw these inferences based on what we know about the ethnography. You know, there's always an ethnographic implication there, even when it's purely an analysis of the archaeological record. And then people say, well, if you go to the archaeological record, you, you know, we can ignore the ethnography, we can ignore the living population, and just look at the archaeology. But Actually, you can't because that all the, the interpretation of the archaeology to begin with is based on the ethnography. So it's like it's this weird people really chasing their tails. And on one level, you know, you guys know there's a lot of scientific debate that is just always going to be unresolved and maybe unresolvable depending on the, the question, right? These are philosophical kind of how you, how you want to view the data kind of questions, right? There's that class of arguments. And then there's a class of arguments that I know the conclusion I want to get to. And I'm going to cherry pick the data to get there. And they can sound like very similar arguments, right? Like, well, I view the data this way. And there's like, okay, that's a fair way to view the data. And there's a, well, I'm only gonna look at these studies or I'm gonna take this kind of extreme view of things because I want to tell you at the end of the day that you should be eating a ketogenic diet or something. You know? And so that's, it pains me as an anthropologist uh, and somebody who really thinks it's interesting to wonder where we're from and what our past is like. And, to see it kind of used that way, it's, it's frustrating.
0: Before we move on to talking about some of the ways you measured energy and sort of different flavors of of energy expenditure, uh, I want to circle back to the Hadza for a minute and, and just ask. So I think, I think we maybe gave the impression that they spend all of their day, you know, walking and, and, and working in various ways to get what they need. But in the book, you lay out sort of time budgets for, uh, how often they're actually doing these things. And it's not as much as you would think, right? They're, they're working on what, like, four or five hours a day to get what they need is that
2: yeah i mean it depends on the day and depends on the but yeah it's it's sort of they actually spend as much time sitting on their butts as we do in the u.s too right so but when when they're moving they're they're really active and when they're not they're not so they don't they they sleep the same amount as we sleep right they get as much time kind of just hanging out as we get hanging out but you know sort of while we're you know standing around waiting for the bus or milling around our kitchens you know Imagine taking all that time every day and, and just walking to the next, the next tuber patch. And that, that's kind of, of how you end up getting all that physical activity. Um, and I should say, too, I'm not sure that we said this uh, or if this is when we want to talk about it. But, you know, the big surprise was that even though they are so physically active, they don't burn more calories than you. Env- yeah,
0: that's the big shock, right?
2: Right. So their bodies are doing this really crazy inter- adjustment. And, uh, and, we, and we're still figuring <laughs> out or trying to figure out. How that's even possible but um but that was the big that was the big surprise
1: well you you've you've seen our notes somehow i mean this is exactly where we wanted to go herman so thanks for the segue um tell us let's let's try to get there though with a little bit more about how you got these data because it comes from you know carrying around the respirometry system you mentioned but especially this use of of a technique that we talked about with another recent guest christine cooper who's used doubly labeled water to quantify you know daily energy expenditure and, and whatever types of, of organism you want to work at. But you started pursuing that because of sort of concerns about another measure of energy expenditure basal metabolic rate, which has been foundational. And so, so kind of walk us through the techniques that you used and maybe why you wanted to focus on daily energy expenditure and then where that's led us in terms of, whoa, these guys don't really spend any more calories. And I think that'll launch us off to of the rest.
2: Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, if you go back to the earliest days of people measuring uh, metabolic rates, you know, and all that early science, um, nobody ever really wanted to measure basal metabolic rates. Nobody set out to do that. <laughs> it just turns out that that's what you can measure in a lab.
1: right? And that basal metabolic rate for the unindoctrinated is what? It, it's, it's the energy you use at total rest,
2: you know, uh, not, not cold, not hot, not digesting, not stressed out. It's, it's just completely... Ba- the basal means the lowest. It's, it is the lowest amount of energy that your body can spend totally at rest and and, um, and, and chilled out. Uh, and so, and that ends up to be, to be a very repeatable measurement. If I measure, you know, if I get you, so so here's what I have to do. You, uh, you have to make sure you haven't eaten in a while. You have to make sure you're not so ecologically stressed out. You have to make sure you're in a room that's not too hot and too cold. And it has to be early in the morning because there's a circadian rhythm to these things. And if I do that, if I measure you, Marty, this tomorrow morning, and then I measure you next week, and I me- I will find that that's a repeatable measurement for you. And the reason it's repeatable is it's it's basically we find this out over the last century of doing this kind of work that it is your organs, uh, basically just just doing the background work to keep you alive, right? So uh, and actually that it turns out that that just baseline organ tissue work is how you spend most of your calories. So people measured basal metabolic rates because they could do it. They could get you in a lab and they could measure it in 20 minutes and they could do it with an animal and and you know, you have to be completely still, right? So you have to be, have the person constrained or the animal kind of in a, in a box or something like that. And you measure that with oxygen consumption and, and CO2 production by measuring the air in the, in the room or in the hood or however the person's constrained. Um, that, that's an interesting data point, but it's kind of a wonky data point, right? You don't lose or gain weight or you have to set your diet around or anything like that around your basal metabolic rate because on top of your basal metabolic rate is all the other stuff you do. And when you add all that together, that's your total energy expenditure over the course of 24 hours, right? That's everything. And almost all of what you care about as an ecologist or as a life history person or as a dietitian or a nutritionist is really that total energy expenditure number. But it turns out it's it's hard to measure because, again, we can only do the breath-by-breath breath stuff or, you know, when you're in, in the room, in the box. And so uh, middle of last century, 1950s or so, post-World War II and all the tragedies of World War II, people w- were really interested in going beyond BMRs, basal metabolic rates, and understanding total energy expenditures so that they could figure out how much food to give to, you know, people who were starving in the, in the wake of World War II. And so they, did, hey, there's no way to measure it, right? Zero ways to measure it. So they did what you would do, uh, you know, I think, what I would have done maybe if I'd have been smart enough. And you said, well, look, there's basal metabolic rate. We know that really well. And then we know that either you have to spend energy on other stuff too. And that other stuff you're spending it on is a lot of it's activity, you know, m- moving around, doing work. And so if I know your activity and I know your BMR, then I can guess how many calories you have to burn every day and that tells me how much food you need to eat and so and that has been that has become the dogma right and so if you go to an online energy expenditure calculator right now or whatever that that's how many calories it says you burn so like you guys are wearing your fitbits right art how many calories does it say you burned today or whatever
0: let's see uh 600, 675 so far still pretty early that's
2: pretty good <laughs> let me ask you so it has it probably has your weight in there
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah so it's taking your weight and your age, maybe, and it's it's estimating your basal metabolic rate, and then it's taking all those little movements, it's adding up, and it's figuring out how much it thinks you burn. That's a completely reasonable way to do things, and it turns out to not work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Fitbit.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, or it doesn't work well enough because you know it, it's people burn you know three thousand calories a day. And if that estimate is off by 10%, which would be actually, if it's, if it's that would mean that it's 90% accurate. That would be amazing. It's not. But if it was off by 10%, that's 300 calories a day. You can do a lot with 300 calories a day, right? You can have, so, um, so for an ecologist perspective or a life history perspective, any kind of, that's not good enough, man, you know, to just guess, basically. And not only that, but then it also uh, assumes that there's this really tight linkage between how physically active you are and how many calories you burn and as we've discovered, actually, it's not that doesn't work like that either. So so
0: so basically you're saying that, that you can do this sort of piecemeal, right? So you could measure the energy cost of different activities in some very careful way in the lab and then just extrapolate to how often you do those and how intensely you do those activities in, in your wild. Yeah. And then voila, you have the total energy expenditure. What you're saying is that you can't do that.
2: You can do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and many <Yeah>. have,
2: <laughs> yeah, many have, and many do. It just doesn't actually work. Uh, and you know, and, and by work, I mean, uh, it's, you, it's an almost a random number generator. Okay.
0: So why doesn't it work?
2: Well, because, and this is all the stuff we're, we're discovering and we're talking about in the book is that, uh, your body is doing all of this interesting sh- metabolic shuffling, it seems, so that if you are more physically active, it's burning less energy on other stuff. And so it, it is true. It is a truism that the energy you burn at the end of the day includes your activity and your BMR and all this other stuff. But your, your, your body's being very clever about um, shifting energy allocation to different tasks so that the total energy you burn at the end of the day is kept in a pretty narrow range, pretty narrow window, and not just a reflection of how active you were.
1: That is profoundly different, though. I mean, I think we need to pause on that a little bit, Art, because that is so completely different than, you know, I think generally we're told. And I've been encouraging my wife to read your book, and I know that we're going to have a lot of conversations. (laughs) I will have to convince her of your wisdom because this is just not how... You know, diets had been pitched to us for so long,
0: yeah, it's not how anybody thinks about it, right? The total received wisdom is you want to lose weight, you go out and be more active and burn more calories, right?
2: yeah, but you know what's funny about that is if you try to pin down why you think that, the reason you think that is because again, they didn't have a way to measure total energy expenditures, and so they guessed, and that guess became the received wisdom I mean I think there's a larger there's a larger story here for all science in general, which is, you know, be careful about the received wisdom, man, because, you know, what do you guys must have examples of this in your own training or your own work where, right? where like you realize, holy cow, the assumptions people have been making are just not based bank- on anything. Total BS. Yeah.
1: So do you think that, I, I mean, I think you do think because of a couple of places in your book that this might also stem from conceiving the body as a machine, Yeah, right? Because if you sort of engineer a system, it's more reasonable because you can't get this sort of reallocation unless you build that into the system, whereas that's not how bodies evolve. I mean, trade-offs are to be expected, we've all, our, our genomes lived through eons of starvations. So we end up with systems that can kind of make these adjustments and totally different system that you'd expect from, you know, if you built it.
2: Totally. And not to, um, you know, not, not to sort of uh, tease doctors too much on your podcast. And I'm sure <laughs> if you're a doctor listening to this, you can just turn down this volume for five minutes. But um, the, there is an assumption in medicine, right, that, that the body works in this kind of coherent way and that we can understand it. And, that, and for the most part, that works pretty well. And that's how medicine works is we find, you know, you, you bring the car into the shop you find out what that knocking sound is and you fix the engine and it goes back out. And, you know, and a lot of medicine is like that, uh, or seems to be, I don't know, as a, as a consumer of medicine. And I think that, you know, in the, in the medical world, which I, where I would also put like diet world and nutrition world, right? We tend to think of the body as this coherent, sensible system that we can tweak the parts and and that makes, and it works the way we expect it to. And we are, continually surprised when it doesn't work that way, and it doesn't work that way for for very good reasons if you were to think about things from an evolutionary point of view, but why would you ever expect that the body would be that simple? Why why would you ever expect that the body would not fight you if you were trying to make it lose weight? Half a billion years of multicellular life, of of vertebrate evolution, and for those 500 million years, um, losing weight is a really bad signal Losing weight meant that you're going to die, and you're going to die, and you're not going to have any reproductive success anymore, and so, you know, you you fight that. Your body has been fighting that since we were, you know, worm-like critters, uh, and, you know, I don't know if it's Burgess Shale. I don't know if it's that old, but it's old, you know, Uh, and so, of course, your body doesn't want to lose weight, you know, and there's all these ways to manipulate it. Anyway, so it's, I think that, that we've been, we're told, I think, I think... Too many doctors are trained that it's a simple engine-like system. I think that that's the version of reality that we're sold um, in, you know, self-help books and, uh, you know, and on the on the covers of of glossy magazines as you check out of this <laughs> grocery store, you know, all those shape and whatever. Not to pick on any of them, they're all do this. They're all they're all regurgitating the received wisdom that it's this easy simple engine-like system. And it's not how it works, you know? And why did we ever think it was? I don't know.
0: Well, there's a couple threads to dig into here. Um, and I think one obvious one is, well, if we know that activity itself incurs an energy cost, you have to spend energy to do it. So why, why doesn't your daily en- energy expenditure go up if you're more active? So what, I, g- I guess the implication is that something about the basal parts of, of what's going on in your body are going down to compensate. So maybe, maybe lay that out for us.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and it, it, what's even weirder is that as your body's adjusting to more physical activity, we don't always see that adjustment in basal metabolic rates, right? Cause, uh, so to get into the weeds a little bit on that. So your basal metabolic rate, we measure, you know, at, at seven in the morning, fasted, whatever, but that's actually not, if you were just to lay down on the sofa behind you right now, assuming there's a sofa behind you, uh, you know, you 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 wouldn't we wouldn't measure a basal metabolic rate on you. We'd measure something else because you're awake and you're alert, and it's not eight in the morning anymore. And um, and you had some coffee, and so and so you're you know, so we would call that resting energy expenditure, which is not the same thing. And, and resting energy expenditure kind of goes up and down in a circadian way, and only at the very bottom of the trough is that basal metabolic rate. Anything else, you know, it's like anything else is, is sparkling metabolism uh it's not not it's not champagne so only at the bottom of the trough there is a bmr everything else is resting energy expenditure and so what we think what i think is happening is that you're getting the rest of that circadian rhythm squashed and you might not see it in bmr but that's not what you're asking what you're asking is how does it adjust at all and i don't think we really know uh, entirely we have a, a few good leads and we're pushing that down and i almost put off writing this book for another five years so that i could have a chapter on exactly all the ways that it's happening.
0: Book number two.
2: Book number two. Here, here's what we have. We have the observation that whether it's the Hadza or other active populations, or even in, among animals, if you look at like a zoo primate versus a primate in the wild, uh, right? We don't, there, are, there aren't differences in total energy expenditure that track activity. So somehow the body's adjusting. I think that that's, I think even even the skeptics, people who were very skeptical about the initial Hadza results 10 years ago, I think have come around to admitting that, yeah, that it is true, that that activity doesn't correspond directly to daily expenditure in the way that it ought to. Now the current debate, I think, is your question, which is how does that happen? And um, there's a few possibilities. One is that you change the way that you are, you, you change physical activity in subtle ways that we don't pick up on it with a Fitbit Right. So I don't think that that's what's happening. So people call that NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis.
0: Meaning like you fidget less, you...
2: Yes, exactly. So there could be some of that less. And for example, if you stand versus lay down, your accelerometer will measure zeros either way, but standing takes more energy than laying down. So you could do things like that. Um, we've you know I, I've modeled that out uh, thinking about different activity costs and fidgeting costs there doesn't seem to be enough fidgeting in the world to 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 do the <laughs> level of you know of, of change that we're seeing of of compensation that we seem to be seeing. So maybe it contributes, but I don't think it's the whole story. Um, you could sleep more or less, but we measured that, and at least with the Hadza, that's not what's going on. Uh, what's more interesting, I think, and and I, I think there's something here, is that your your body is physiologically adjusting, you know that resting metabolic rate. Well, what is that resting metabolic rate? It's what all your tissues and organs are doing. And you can adjust that. Uh, and we know that, we know that those things res- do, do change over time and, and, and depending on circumstance. And so we think that those adjustments are what's making room, basically, for more physical activity. And so to give you an example, uh, if you are a physically trained person, you're, you're a regular exerciser, if I scare you, And I watch your heart rate go up and come back down. Um, It'll go up, down, and and come back down faster than if you are an untrained person. Hmm. And the same with your cortisol response, right? So stress reactivity is is less. Yeah, and they did a really nice, there's a nice uh, study on this for a different reason. Those are always the best studies to steal from because they they didn't have your hypothesis in mind when they collected the data. They don't care if you're right or wrong, right? So in some ways, that's perfect. Uh, There were a study of college women, who had, uh, my, they, they reported mild depressive symptoms. And so they were enrolled in the study to see if exercise would help them with their depression. And it did, which is great. Words, so you so you, know, you should definitely exercise, by the way. This is, all of this is not to tell you to not exercise. So it, 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 the, at the end, it did help with them with their, their depression. But they also did uh, a couple of fun things. was um, It was a, a within-subjects crossover design. So what that means is you measure the same person twice, once when they're not doing exercise for a few weeks, and ones when they are doing exercise regularly for a few weeks. And in those non-exercise versus exercise periods, they measured, they took a 24 hour urine collection and they measured all the catecholamines you produced and all the cortisol you produced. And they actually could show that when you're exercising, and it wasn't even that, rig- it wasn't like intense, it was like pretty moderate, easygoing exercise. They, w- women produced 30% less Adrenaline and 30 percent less cortisol over 24 hours than in the pre and we know what those we know what those chemicals do to your body They get your metabolic rate ramped up. So those kind of adjustments can make room um, Inflammation is much lower if you exercise and what's inflammation well, it's innate immune response that you know, you need some of it But you don't need as much as people have often going on chronically in the background all the time and so if you turn that down people have been noticing for a long time that that exercise reduces inflammation but the next step would be, well then it must also be spending, your immune system must be spending less, fewer calories. It has to be, isn't that what it means to be doing less, right? Um, reproductive hormone levels go down. Among the Hadza, um, men's testosterone levels are about half of what they are uh, among men in the US. You know? So that's where this is pointing and we're trying to, to get that data now and do, because you know, what it would take is rather than you know, I've done I've, I've written review papers on this and, and I've looked at the lit, and, and so I think the data all point this way. But what needs to happen is a longitudinal study where we take somebody who is sedentary ish and we get them ramped up to being much more physically active. And we want to watch all of the switches get turned down on all the other physiology that you know, their bodies are doing so.
1: Uh, Herman, in animal studies, it was my understanding that sort of the composition of BMR and the kinds of things you're talking about where some physiological functions and even whole organs and tissues get kind of taken apart. And, you know, I mean, that, that happened, like migrant birds are one of the, the, the major ones, right? They completely change their muscle physiology and their digestive system atrophies when they're about to, to get on a, on a long haul. So that is, a, I mean, you're talking about sort of in humans, whether or not these kinds of things happen and whether there are other explanations, but in a, in a broad sense, this sort of there's a cap on daily energy expenditure and you're making allocations below that. That is a, I mean, that is a reasonable way of thinking about things from diverse forms of life.
2: Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And, and that, that's totally right. And, you know, that, I think that's a reason, one more reason that doctors should also learn not just evolutionary biology, but they should also learn comparative biology be more uh, you know broadly educated about how the body can respond
0: so let's turn now I mean this this ought to have just profound implications for you know human health in the first world and the obesity epidemic and and sort of what we need to do to to combat that. So, so what, what are the implications of this, this constrained energy, daily energy expenditure?
2: So there are a couple big ones that I can think of and, and, and spell out in the book. One is that, um, so obesity has to be fundamentally about taking in more food than you burn off, right? That's, that's the physics of it. And so there's this argument, well, is it diet or is it exercise? Or there's this kind of mushy, messed up public health messaging that is both, you know, that we have to do both to balance both sides of the equation. Um, and, you know, exercise is always given as a way to, to help lose weight and to keep weight off. You know, if you look at the WHO or CDC guidelines, but what this work is saying is that the energy expenditure side of that equation is really hard to move, right? Your body's going to fight it. You might, you know, we didn't talk about this yet, but you know, that adjustment that we're talking about, it doesn't happen immediately. Right, it's going to take a few weeks to kick in, um, and like day to day, you might still have fluctuations. We would expect that too, but as a you know as a long term solution to obesity, exercise isn't going to do it because over time, your body adjusts to that new that new normal, and the expenditure to side doesn't change. And so, what would happen? Well, gosh, if that if that were the case, then if I started a new exercise program, I'd lose a couple pounds early, and then it would stop happening. It's like, well, gosh, guys, that's exactly what every exercise study's ever shown. Yeah. Then you got to focus on the diet part, you know, why is, it's the energy in part of that equation that's causing obesity. And then you got to ask, well, then why is that such a problem? Why isn't our body better at regulating energy intake? It's so good at energy expenditure regulation. And the answer there gets complicated because your body is pretty good at measuring, at at regulating energy intake. You know, normally, you know, you think you burn about 3,000 calories a day. There's about 3,500 calories in a pound of you, more or less. And so, even if you gained a pound a year, right? That's just a little bit over a day's worth of expense. So
0: slight imbalance.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's one. That's one 365th. Right. That's how much you're off by. You gain two pounds. It's two 360. So you're way. Even even people who are slowly gaining a couple pounds a year, and that is the obesity crisis, by the way. It isn't like people gain. 30 pounds in a year. They gain a couple pounds a year, and by, they go from being a healthy weight 20-year-old to being an overweight 40-year-old. That So you, the it's the intake side that's the problem, but it's just such a small amount that it, that has all of the markings of a regulation issue, right? It's a dysregulation thing. And, and so we need to stop haranguing people about diet choices too, for that matter, because people aren't going out there saying, gosh, I, I hope I could develop obesity today. Not, the people aren't trying to do that. Um, and instead, you have to look at like, well, why is it that in this food environment that we've built for ourselves, you know, these human zoos that we all live in, that our, our brains are doing a bad job at, at regulating energy intake? Uh, there's lots of great work out there showing that, that processed foods that are literally engineered by you know, people to be overeaten— our, your brain has a really hard time handling the ca- the input from that. And, and, and your reward systems get overwhelmed and, and you eat too much. And so uh, that's, that's I think, the implication for this work is, is one, that you can't change the energy out- output part very much, so you, you got to focus on diet. And then when you drill down on that side of it, well, f- what do you mean focus on diet? That's
1: it. So this is a, I mean, you, you use the word regulatory problem, which Art and I love to think about biology in terms of regulatory problems. Why... Or, or are there? Is it just my naivety? Are there are there concerted efforts now to. We haven't said hypothalamus, I think, but a lot of this sort of regulation is, is coming from. Let's say hypothalamus, this special part of the. We were all uh, thinking it. Your brain. Yeah, we're all. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what's going on there? I mean, are there drugs being used to either, you know, other parts of the brain about reward systems or in the hypothalamus for the regulation of thyroid hormones and things like leptin and, you know, these other. Fun hormones. Well,
2: right. People thought it was going to be leptin, right? I mean, that was the big push.
1: Yeah, the, ma- the leptin was supposed to be magical when it was discovered not too long ago. Right. Yeah,
2: and it turns out we are fantastic at treating obesity in mice
1: <laughs> because it, it works
2: for them. Um, and there's some evidence that it kind of helps in humans, but it wasn't the silver bullet that everybody thought it would be. But it's going to be something like that. But you know, um, the, so the hypothalamus, which sits right at the center of that reward and, and regulation system, uh, it's getting lots and lots of signals, right? It's getting, when you eat a meal, uh, it's not just getting the hormonal signal of leptin release that that says, okay, we're, we're filling up our fat cells now, so that's we're all good. But it also is able to sense the glucose and the proteins that, that are in your blood from the meal. It's able to sense via the brainstem signaling uh, the stretch of the stomach as you fill up. Oh, and also not only that, but it's also uh, speaking to the reward systems of your brain that are talking to your taste buds and, and, you know, all of that. Uh, and so, yeah, look, if, if you, any of us knew what drug you would take to trick to get your hypothalamus back in line, um, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation like this. We, we'd be uh, in, in Tahiti or something, you know, uh, <laughs> rolling our of billions of dollars because that, that, that's the multi-billion-dollar question. So, like, well, how, how do we get the system back on track? But you know, I think one thing that uh, is fun with this is that there's if it's if it's the brain, then well, that makes a really simple prediction. Then all the variants, and there are at least nine hundred of them. All the genetic variants in the human genome that have been associated with obesity should be active in the brain. And sure enough, like almost all of them are, you know, more active in the brain than anywhere else. So this is a regulation issue.
0: So, so. This this conversation kind of segues into a question I've been wanting to ask here for a few minutes and and that is so I know you're not a public policy guy, but let's say that Joe Biden calls you up this afternoon and says, you know, hey, I'm putting together an obesity committee to combat obesity in the U.S. Um, We need basic research scientists on there to lead this effort. I want you. You know, what 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 would you recommend and what would you do?
2: You know, we need to get ultra processed foods off the table. For kids, I think that us three talking here, you know, the bus has left the station and and whatever metabolic cards we've been dealt, we're going to be managing with minor course corrections until until we run out. Uh, It's really hard to change. It is really, really hard to change because your body is a evolved system that doesn't like to change, likes to be dynamically stable. Uh, it's really hard to change adult physiology, so I think you put all the chips on childhood obesity, which is this growing epidemic, and I think you solve that by um you know gym class is great, you need that too, but you fix the fact that something like thirty percent of the calories that we all eat are added sugars and added oils and um and those problems are worse in people in populations you know that that are Horror, because guess what? Processed food is cheap.
1: Well, let's, I don't, I don't want to leave this topic without singing the praises of exercise because, you know, a couple of times you've touched on it and maybe exercise isn't the solution for weight management, but tell us a little bit about all the good reasons that we need to continue (laughs) to exercise.
2: (laughs) That's right. Yeah, this is not a, you still have to exercise. Um, the, so first of all, exercise is good for your brain it's, it's, there's cognitive benefits. There's immune system benefits, which you guys can probably talk about more than I could talk about. There are um, muscle strength benefits. There's, there's cardio. So there's all these things that we know are really good for you from exercise, which have nothing to do with how many calories you burn. And then there's the energetic piece of it. And I think this is the exciting part that I'm, I'm excited about, uh, which is that all of those changes your body's making to respond to exercise to kind of keep your metabolic energy budget more or less the same, all of those adjustments are good for you actually. Reducing stress reactivity is good for you. Redressing, reducing immune uh, inflammation response is good for you. Uh, reducing, you know, high levels of reproductive hormones are actually probably good for you. So all of that metabolic m- management that happens in response to exercise is probably a big reason why it's so darn good for you. So you got to do it. You absolutely have to do it. And there's also, and, and the people who um, have been pushing exercise as a solution to obesity for a long time, um, would also make the point because they've kind of, I think the battle has gone the other way for them, but they would make the point, which is true, that exercise also seems to be good for keeping weight off.
0: Right. So if you can manage to eat less and, and lose pounds, then if you exercise, you're much more likely to keep that weight off.
2: And that's important, right? Because that's, you know, because keeping weight, anybody can make short-term changes. Not anybody. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but people have more luck making short-term changes than the long-term changes. And so, you know, that's, that's that is a not... Small benefit uh, is that exercise helps you keep weight off. What I I think personally, I think has to do again with this regulation thing that it does, but regardless of why, and I don't think we know yet, uh, it's good for weight maintenance.
0: Well, that's great. Um, one other topic we wanted to hit here before we wrap up is, um, you have this really interesting section at the end on, uh, elite athletes and sort of extreme endurance events. And, and that was kind of a revelation to me because you, you spent a, a, a nice chunk of time talking about what limits human performance. So what, what keeps these elite athletes from, you know, doing their race even a little bit faster or what is what you've discovered inform about, about those limits?
2: Yeah. So, uh, we got into this, I got into this topic with my own research uh, when this guy named Bryce Carlson, who has, he's left academia, so he's, he, he made it out alive.
0: <laughs> One of the few. <laughs>
2: um, but he, he made it. Anyway, uh, he, when he was still a professor at, at Indiana, he uh, organized a scientific effort for this race across the USA, which was was insane foot race. It wasn't really a race. They weren't really racing each other. It was, it was a communal fun thing, but the race across the USA, and they ran a marathon a day. They being, it was a dozen or so folks who did this, and we measured, I think, six of them in the study, ran from um, the Pacific Ocean, you know, to Washington, D.C., over five months. So it was a marathon a day, six days a week. Um, and so we measured energy expenditures at the beginning, and then we measured energy expenditures at the end, and I was interested in watching the body adjust. Right to see if it changed the way it burned calories and everything else, you know, c- could your could your body adjust to make room for a marathon a day? The answer is no, that's too much. But it, it, it so it adjusts, but not as not that whole amount, which is interesting in itself, what the limits of adjustment can be. But then I thought, well, gosh, you know, i wonder how this stacks up against all the other, you know crazy, extreme events that have ever ever been measured. And people have measured, using this doubly labeled water technique, they've measured the Tour de France, and they've measured the Kona Ironman, and they've measured the Western States 100, and they've measured it. uh, And I went out and found all the stuff I could find on this, all the measurements I could find. And if you plot the amount of energy expenditure they're able to maintain for these, you know, the, the average daily energy expenditure of the Tour de France, for example, against how long the Tour de France lasts, and you do that for all the events, you end up drawing this very clean ceiling. You know, you guys can appreciate this when you get data back and you plot it out and you go, oh, th- that's real, you know? Um, so that was such a fun surprise. And, uh, and, and what, basically what you're mapping out is the limits of, of, of endurance, right? Because, you know, like you say, for the Tour de France, for example, if a person could have done more, for those 28 days, if they could have, have revved their metabolic engine at, at a higher rate for 28, well, they would have won, they w- would win the Tour de France by hours and days, right? But, but nobody does that. Everybody's kind of in the same. So, they're all, so you know that you've found a ceiling. What's, so a couple funny things about that. At the very edge, the, the longest duration, highest energy expenditure thing that we could find is pregnancy right? Nine months um, at a metabolic scope, which is your total energy expenditure divided by your BMR of 2.5 or something like that. So, you know, about 3,000 cal- 4,000 calories a day for, um, for nine months. Isn't that amazing, right? And, and so if you think, well, if the energy, if the energy intake part of the tissues of the muscles pulling the energy in were the limiting factor here, then what's pregnancy doing as part of this group? Because it's a different set of tissues. It should be a different, it should be a different limit. And so instead the fact that all these different events are all playing by the same rules suggests that it's the energy supply side, right? It's the energy, it's the part of the energy flow that gets it into your mouth and into your guts and through your liver and into your blood. Um, and then we thought, well, if that's true, if that's the limit, then, then you know, how does that all play out? And um, it's, it turns out that if you're above, for activities that were above two and a half times basal metabolic rate, Everybody's losing weight slowly. So you can do it for a month or you can do it for a week, but you can't do it forever because you can't lose weight forever. You'll you die. And so at about 2.5 basal metabolic rate, which is about 4,500 calories for most folks, four to, four to, somewhere between four and 5,000 calories a day would be most people's 2.5 BMR. For those folks, anybody above that's losing weight, anything below that, you can maintain weight. And pregnancy, of course, is parked right beneath that ceiling. Because it has to be, right? And so then you're like, oh, wait a second. And, and this, is, this is still, and you know, that paper's a couple of years old now. And, and, um, and the event is three or four years old. And so this is just how slow things happen, at least for me in my science. But I'm still thinking about this. I don't think we know entirely what that means. But it suggests to me, you know, there has been no selection, as far as I can tell, on the ability to ride a bicycle for a month. Um, but there has definitely been selection on pregnancy. I can promise you that. And so that suggests to me that the entire system, the entire ceiling, has been pushed around by selection for reproduction. So, so
0: you're basically saying that the energetics of reproduction and gestation ultimately set the ceilings on all of these extreme athletic events that we're we're viewing around the world.
2: That's that's the provocative implication of this, and you know, and we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's let's dig into this just for a sec. So is it's about energy intake so is it about the capacity of our guts to digest the food and absorb this like an upper limit to that or is it about how much we can stuff in our mouths or what
2: no I think I think it's uh, somebody pointed this out the other day Uh, Alex Hutchinson actually who writes for outside magazine um, pointed this out to me he's like well you know these world record hot dog eaters they can eat a (laughs) a million calories a day and so I looked into this because I'm like, oh, geez, he's right. And if they're actually absorbing all that food, then that's, wow, wow, you know, then I'm wrong, which is great. It's great. It's nice to be wrong. And it turns out that when you look into this, I don't think anybody studied this. One of your listeners should go and do this. Do this study, please. Figure out how much energy you actually absorb from these uh, hot dog eating contests. And and the, uh, the na- I did a narrative review. No, not really. But I, I read as many accounts as I could easily Google. It turns out that... that Apparently, the hours and days after one of these competitions are not pretty, um, and you need like a, a different septic system in your home to make it to make it work. Uh, anyway, I I don't think it's the digestive tract. I think it's or I don't think it's the sort of mechanical. How much food can you put down your gullet? I think it's the uh, absorption and all that part.
0: So you have this interesting part of the book, we talk about this in relation to Michael Phelps, right, who is wide, widely reported to have eaten 12,000 kilocalories a day when he was, you know, training for the Olympics. And, and you basically do the math and say, no way, that he can't possibly absorb that much, right?
2: No, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and even he, it turns out that that was a total... It was just propaganda, you know? It was alternative facts.
1: Is that what they're called? I yeah, think
0: it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He's trying to scare the competition. i mean more
1: energy than they are. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe he just has that special septic system like the hot dog eaters. That's right. Yeah. That's,
2: right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, but then it also raises the possibility that like, you know, who is able, who, who are the Michael Phelpses? Is it the guy who is the most dedicated to be, spending time in the pool? Is that the person who gets to be the Olympic athlete? Because everybody wants, you know, a lot of kids want to be Michael Phelps. Is it that kid or is it the kid whose, you know, liver enzymes are a little bit more aggressive and is able Got, to... got
0: the biggest gut and the longest colon. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean... yeah.
2: I don't know. It's interesting to, to, to think about that. Um, again, more work for somebody to, to go into. I'd love to see it. But, you know, it, it's it, it, two things about that that I'll say to kind of wrap up, to, to connect it back to the Hadza work. Because in my mind, of course, it's all connected. Um, first of all, if you were to run that ceiling out and ask, you know, what does that ceiling of metabolic limit predict for, for infinite amounts of time for, which is sort of like for daily life over years and years and years, you end up having the same implied limit for daily life as we find the Hadza are living under, right? So it's sort of like you discover that limit again through this extreme events study, which is kind of fun. But the art the piece of it is this, is that, um, that extreme events limit metabolic limit is born from the data right i can i can tell you i i never woke up one day and thought i'm going to go discover the limits to the you know to this or i'm gonna i'm gonna draw the line and then i'm gonna find the data to fill it in i went and found the data and that's what they look like you know and it's the Hadza stuff too I, I didn't expect you know when i was writing the grants to nsf to get funding for the Hadza work initially i was we wanted to find out how much more cal how many more calories they spend every day than everybody else because we knew it would be super high you know and it turns out that's not what the data said and so, you know, I think like going out, listening to the data, being humble about that, um, being curious about that, and you know, these are all the data has led me to these fun places. And um, and I'll be the first one to be excited when we go somewhere else because the data points somewhere else. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that this sparks some kind of work by other other labs, other folks, and and I'm sure. That this isn't the last thing, the last word on this stuff. I'm sure that we're gonna figure out more.
1: So Herman, we wanna give you the last word and you know, you can dwell on it in the background while you answer my my last question. But the, the last one is sort of just give you the chance to say anything you want about the book or the future of your research that we haven't gotten to. But before you answer that one, is this ceiling thing specific to humans? And if if our ceiling is representative of other ceilings and other primates or other species generally? I mean, how, how far away are, are we from maybe an ideal, if it's even possible to conceive an ideal?
2: Gosh. Uh, I don't know. You know, there, there's, there's so much... <laughs> and you
1: can say, forget it, uh, we're going to move on. That's
2: fine. <laughs> No, I, I just... I think that our ceiling is a product of our evolution, like everything else in our physiology. I bet you the chimpanzee ceiling is different, although I can tell you that nobody's measured it and nobody ever probably will. Uh, that would be... You, you'd need, you know... I don't know what the chimpanzee equivalent of the Tour de France is, but I'll let you organize that. I don't. I don't want to organize the chimp Tour de France. Um, so you know, but I, I think um, just like you're talking about with the bird migration, right? Like, why can't we do that work? Why can't we tie that work in to the human nutrition work and the and people are true, you know, people do that, and and it's always really cool the the connections people draw. But it's going to take that kind of perspective, right? It's going to take that kind of of trying to find the interesting connections, which is what scientists do, right? This is what you guys do. It's what we all do. That's what's fun about this creative work. But that'll, So if I, if I knew the answer right now, I'd, we'd go off and scurry off and try to do it. But it's going to take somebody to have the spark and, and get that creative idea.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. So what else did we not give you the chance to say? What else would you like to, to leave the listeners with? Well, we covered a lot,
2: and this is really fun. And it's always it's fun to talk to biologists about this stuff. Uh, and so thanks for having me on. The one thing I would say is it was just a lot of fun to write this book. And I never really thought, um, that, you know, that I'd be lucky enough that the work I was going to do would, would, would spark people's interests and would be, you know, the kind of thing that people would want to hear about in a book. And, And so I just feel really lucky to have had the chance to do all this. And, um, I tried to, to bring some of that fun into of the book so i hope when people read it i hope first of all i hope people read it and second of all well i hope they have as much fun reading it as i had writing it
0: thanks so much herman really great <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org.
1: Patrons that make monthly donations on Patreon also get access to awesome perks like video recordings and full uncut audio recordings of our interviews. And Marty singing opera. Aha! Uh-huh. And they also get early access to show notes and the meet the scientist interviews, where guests talk with us about their scientific heroes and non-scientific hobbies.
0: We also want to give a shout out to one of our most dedicated patrons. Thank you, Harry Newell, for your patronage.
1: And if money is tight right now, you can help us out by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or just telling your friends about us over your favorite social media app.
0: On the next episode, we talked to Holly Putnam, a professor at the University of Rhode Island about what to expect for our world's corals as ocean conditions change.
1: That idea of inherited gene gene regulation or gene expression regulation that I was talking about in there is really the idea that, that it, it's not likely that that player will always stay there, right? That's part of a cascade. It's probably going to trigger something that moves on to trigger something else and set up this state right? This state of regulation that's inherited. Thanks to Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Jordan Greer, Ajinkia Dehake, and Dana Baxter manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website.
0: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.